Welcome to The Uplift, the show that celebrates women leaders who lift each other. I'm Carol Shabrias, a higher ed executive on a mission to help women leaders restore joy and meaning to their daily work. After more than 25 years of serving colleges and universities, I am over higher ed's culture of busyness and burnout, especially for women leaders. Leadership churn is no joke and no wonder. Higher ed works us to exhaustion, leaving no space for the passion that drew us to it in the first place. And so many of us find ourselves caught in what can feel like a meaningless slog to a paycheck. From quit lit to the great resignation to the great reassessment, women are fleeing higher ed in search of joyful, integrated lives. And yet we know this work matters. The ways we shape young minds and prepare them to be intelligent and informed global citizens, that matters. So if you're a woman committed to higher ed and also seek joy and balance in your life, welcome. This podcast is for you. Hey there, welcome to episode seven. I'm recording this one from the gray ambiguity of COVID exposure. I'm negative, but it was a close contact and I've been feeling a little bit like a hypochondriac for the last few days. So when you're listening to this, I'm either going to be quarantining in my attic to protect my family, or hopefully gleefully running around town with a mask on, of course, because somehow I got lucky enough to yet again escape the virus. If you've been following me anywhere on social media or listening to this podcast, you know already that I'm low-key obsessed with the Dobbs ruling and the way it's going to affect our college campuses. To my mind, there's no question of whether Dobbs will affect colleges. The question is when and how we'll see the effects, how long it will take for us to recognize them, the pace at which we'll experience them, and whether we'll respond like the proverbial frog boiling in a pot. All of which has me thinking about planning. So today we're gonna talk about planning. Hey, hey, was that an eye roll? Hold up. We are not going to have the standard, dull, strategic planning conversation. No, you remember I studied literature, so we are gonna talk about the importance of stories and storytelling. Stories are magical. They build empathy, they tug at our emotions, they create catharsis, they create shared memories, they hold us together. Our brains love stories. Our hearts love stories. Think about your favorite cultural gatherings where you tell the stories that are the bedrock of your shared history, or your after-work happy hours where you share the small bits of story that made up your workday or your alumni magazine, which is 100% about telling stories that shape perceptions of and build affection for your institution. Your campus colleagues processing their feelings about prior administrations by relaying stories, the good and the bad, about how they led. Stories are at the heart of everything we do together. Your leadership will persist in the stories people tell about you. It's likely that stories are as old as language itself. We tell each other stories to entertain each other and also to make sense of the world, to explain the seemingly inexplicable and to pass down traditions. We've been doing this for a long, long time. And I'm gonna bet you are not using stories when you plan. And I want you to. 
And not just because I'm an English major who wishes she could still spend her days lounging around reading books, although honestly, that's a little bit of it. No, I want you to use stories in planning because telling and rehearsing stories is a powerful way for an institution to plan for an uncertain future. This is not my original idea. Much of what I'm about to share I draw from a book published in 1991 called The Art of the Long View by Peter Schwartz. This book, which is now more than 30 years old, is based on work he did in the decades prior to its publication, and even then the ideas weren't original to him. Still, his ideas have become the cornerstone for many futurists and future strategists. I was introduced to this book by a provost I used to work for, who was seeking ways to help our institution get more creative in our problem solving. And, as those of you who love the liberal arts as much as I do know, Stories are an excellent way to unleash creativity. Schwartz's ideas are pretty dated by now. I mean, in 1991, the future he was looking at was the year 2005. But his concepts and approach stand the test of time. Using stories to build scenarios about the future is a good way to make sense out of ambiguity and disorder. It also forces us to challenge our assumptions about what we think is the natural order of things and to change our mindsets by expanding our imaginations to see options and opportunities that are probably pretty different from our standard day-to-day worldview. I'm offering this suggestion now in today's episode because the uncertainty about Dobbs has the potential to paralyze us. It would be easy to think about having a significant increase of pregnant students on campus, and if that's pretty far outside your campus experience, you might think, ah, that's not likely to happen here or even tell yourself that you'll deal with it when and if it happens. But if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that lack of preparation, which requires us to constantly fight fires because we haven't had time to plan, is exhausting. Even more, it's unnecessary. We can see much of what's coming, even though we may be uncertain about how exactly it will all play out. Over the next few years, we're likely to see continued uncertainty about the sanctity of democratic elections, We're likely to see additional life-changing Supreme Court decisions, demographic decisions that will affect college enrollment, instability in the U.S.'s reputation and standing in the international community, and the still-evolving face of healthcare services for women. It's true that we don't know what will happen, and we don't know when and to what extent we'll feel any of the effects. But it's not true that we have to wait for them in order to prepare for them. Scenario building is essentially storytelling about what the future might look like. If you craft multiple stories, you can cover a wide range of options, and then you can begin deciding as a team how you want to prepare to respond for the future eventualities. If you revisit these scenarios regularly enough, you can keep your responses timely and relevant, even as you plan to dedicate needed resources early enough to reduce the strain on your campus community. Schwartz's scenario planning has a few crucial steps. One, identifying the factors in your environment that are driving change. Two, identifying what he calls critical uncertainties. Three, creating a range of scenarios that take those factors and those uncertainties into account. And then four, rehearsing those scenarios by asking yourself to imagine living in that story now and figuring out how you want to respond. I've put together a guide you can use to start using storytelling for planning. I used some common factors and uncertainties, created four different scenarios and stories, 
and then pose a series of questions that will help us rehearse those stories. I didn't do this to predict the future. The purpose of this exercise is specifically not to quote unquote be right about what's going to happen. But the stories I put together in this guide give you a starting point just to see what this work can look like. If you're interested in trying this process with your team, go ahead and download and share the tip sheet and use it as a framework together as you craft your own scenarios and write stories that are relevant to you. As context for that guide, I'm going to spend the rest of this episode laying out seven team building steps you can follow to prepare your colleagues to do the complex work of planning for an uncertain future through storytelling. This isn't quick, easy work, but you know, good planning rarely is. This is, however, a proven method for helping teams think differently about the environment they're in and preparing to address potential events as they unfold. I think you'll find it worth considering. Okay, planning step one, prioritize diversity. Schwartz's basic idea is that to prepare for a possible future, you have to understand what has shaped that future and called it into being. This is fundamentally an interdisciplinary behavior requiring us to explore economics, public health, politics, international relations, technology, scientific advances, population shifts, and so on. If you want to tell a story with all of these components and even more, you'll need to gather a diverse group of people who have great variability in both their expertise and their experiences. So your first step in planning is to prioritize diversity. Invite many diverse voices into this conversation. You need identity diversity because people with different identities have had different life experiences and therefore have different views on the world and different ways of solving problems. You also need cognitive diversity because people who think differently from each other will bring more ideas, more models, more frameworks to the table, and they'll help the team produce more creative solutions. But don't just give lip service to prioritizing diversity. You can't just throw different kinds of people into a situation and hope for the best. Your job as a leader is to ensure your diverse teams are working in conditions where their diversity matters. Team members must feel safe and empowered to speak. They also must be able to listen to each other. If these conditions don't yet exist for your storytelling teams, spend some time working on that. Help folks get to know each other help them understand their purposes and roles in this particular process, and help them see the value of their individual and group contributions. Show that you value diverse creative solutions and then liberate your teams to do their best problem solving. This diverse team will be ideal for helping you identify the environmental factors and the critical uncertainties that are going to provide the setting and the backdrop for your stories. You want people who see the world differently to help you decide what the key ingredients are for these scenarios you're going to write. For some folks, that will be money or the economy. For others, it will be politics. Some will focus on families, some on public health, some on social justice for the historically excluded, some on law, and so on. Giving the teams the task of identifying these key features together will produce a better rounded sense of what the future might hold. Planning step two, choose your direction. Once you've gathered and empowered your diverse teams and they've established the background and setting for your scenarios, give them a direction for their story. Schwartz recommends four different directions and these are the four I've used in the guide I created for you. One is the status quo scenario. 
Think of this like Waiting for Godot, the famous Beckett play where two men sit waiting for an important event, in this case, the arrival of the man named Godot. They think that's gonna happen today, and it doesn't. And then they are told it will surely happen tomorrow. So they sit and wait. They think Godot will come today. He doesn't. They are reassured it will surely happen tomorrow. Godot never arrives. Nothing changes. The status quo continues. Then there's the best case scenario. One of my favorite happy ending movies is Little Miss Sunshine. It's not a really very happy movie, except that it is. In this movie, a family goes on a road trip with lots of drama. Their aging VW bus breaks down, grandpa gets sick and dies, and the family smuggles his corpse out of the hospital and into the back of their van. The teenage son goes through a pretty dramatic emotional catharsis. The family nearly misses the beauty pageant that is the reason for the road trip in the first place. And then their daughter's performance causes an uproar in the depressing hotel conference room where the pageant is taking place. But it's all okay because the family rallies behind her and publicly supports her with a crazy happy dance party at a moment that would otherwise be an embarrassing social disaster. Even best case scenarios with happy endings include setbacks and drama because tension and resolution and catharsis are at the heart of many of the best stories. Okay, then there's the worst case scenario. And with the pandemic on my mind, I think a great example is the movie Contagion, in which an international traveler who dies a sudden and gruesome death when she comes home is traced as patient zero in a global outbreak of a deadly virus. The outbreak demolishes the global population, while food and supplies run out and people fight each other over limited resources, and families cope with unexpected death and destruction. It seems so unlikely that shaking the hand of a butcher with infected blood on his hands could lead to the end of civilization as we know it. But then again, COVID-19, so... And then finally, the outlier scenario. Having an outlier story lets you be creative and imagine something that probably won't happen, but could. I love the movie Zombieland for this example. It's a mashup of farce, horror, sci-fi, and action-adventure. A bunch of ragtag misfits find each other as they drive across the country protecting themselves from killer zombie attacks. It has blood and gore and shotguns and love and loyalty and Twinkies and a random and charming cameo with Bill Murray. It's a story about something that could happen, okay, except for the zombie bit, so minus that one bit of implausibility, this outlier actually gives you a lot of reasonable possibilities to chew on. Which brings us to planning step three. Write your shitty first draft. Now that your diverse teams have established the background and they know what direction their story will take, they are ready to write their shitty first draft. So this phrase comes from Anne Lamott in her book, Bird by Bird. She describes this shitty first draft, and these are my words, not hers, as the draft you have to write in all of its ugly, inarticulate messiness because if you don't write it, you can't go on to write a good second draft and you'll never get to a prize-winning third draft. You have to start somewhere, and the shitty first draft is it. Now, I'm including it here as a more specific step than just write your scenarios, because your teams are going to be storytelling at the complex intersection of difficulty and vulnerability, which is why first drafts suck so much. Writing is hard. 
Nobody writes brilliantly the first time around. Honestly, they don't. The act of writing requires great vulnerability. You have to be willing to sound stupid, to type ridiculous sentences, to let nonsense come tumbling out of your mouth and through your fingertips onto the page where it stares back at you in all its embarrassing glory. But you have to do that in order to get something written so that you can, in the words of one of my writer friends, heat, hammer, and shape those words into the story you want to tell. Okay, so this is hard when you're sitting alone. It's even harder with other people. Imagine being that vulnerable with a group of people, all of whom are expected to be that vulnerable with you. This could be off the charts painful. I mean, who among us gets excited by the idea of looking basic? As the teenagers in my house say, nah. You need to prepare your diverse teams to write shitty first drafts by creating the conditions in which they feel safe enough to fail together. If your team is strong and solid and regularly works this way, you are golden. But if you take this storytelling project on with new teams and these folks aren't accustomed to working together this way, or if you've got a team that has people working at different levels of your organizational hierarchy, or if your team includes folks who are accustomed to being talked over or not listened to, you're gonna have to do some work to prepare them emotionally to write shitty first drafts together. That's what planning step three is about. Make time to do that work during this stage so that they can really unleash their creativity. Which brings us to planning step four, revise. You don't really need to go any further than a pretty good second draft. I mean, you could go for an award-winning third draft. Your call, that'd be pretty awesome. But at the end of the day, this isn't a story writing contest. All you need from each scenario is clarity and context sufficient to make the story understandable to people and to pull them into it. To revise, most writers write something bad and then walk away from it. They come back to it later with fresh eyes and maybe even with another reader's perspective. Try to create those conditions for writing and revising for your storytelling teams. Space out the deadlines between their shitty first drafts and their revisions and create some mechanisms for feedback. If this isn't something you've done before, and it may not be, consider asking for guidance from the faculty on your campus who teach writing. If you're able, draw on their expertise by inviting them into planning this process as you're designing it and maybe even helping the writers work through it. Planning step five, identify the impact of each story. All right, so now you've got four interesting, rich stories of what the world could look like in the future if different environmental factors come into play. For each of those stories, ask a series of questions. You're trying to figure out what the impact will be of each particular scenario. So you're gonna ask yourself questions about living in that world. You're not gonna ask yourself questions about leading a university in that world. You're really just gonna think about what it's like in that environment. What do the people living in this version of the future want? What do they value? What kinds of choices will they make? How will they spend their money? How will they behave? How will these choices, behaviors, and values affect your industry, not your campus, that's too specific for this stage, but your industry? Identifying the impact is all about understanding the larger shifts, whether they're global, national, or possibly even regional, that will affect you locally. So for step five, stay focused on the big picture. Then move to step six, rehearse the future. Now remember these stories are not predictions. 
They just give you a way to understand a potential future reality or identifying it in whole or in parts as it unfolds. So now you've got your stories. You've identified how each one is likely to change people's perceptions and behaviors, and you can step into that future and rehearse it. For Schwartz, this means running through simulated events as if you were already living in them, which helps you train yourself to recognize which drama is unfolding. This provides the information you need in order to figure out how you will adapt locally to those more global changes. Rehearsing the future encourages you continuously to explore the environmental factors leading to each scenario. It keeps you alert to events as they happen, because since you're not predicting anything, those events could come from anywhere. They could be in any one of your scenarios and even in none of them. And then to identify the resources you'll need to address those changes and to identify those resources ahead of time so you're not scrambling at the last minute. Rehearsing the future is where you apply your answers and implications to your local situation. For this to be as rich as possible, pull your full team together. It's beneficial if, for example, the storytellers from the status quo join the rehearsal of the outlier because they'll see things from their story even if they're also occurring in this story. They'll also see different things than will the teams who wrote the other stories. This is where the power of identity and cognitive diversity really benefit your problem solving. So rehearse the futures and rehearse them together. Take advantage of all that identity and cognitive diversity in the room. And then finally, planning step seven is to continue rehearsing and acting on your findings. Please don't rehearse the future once and then put this exercise away. This activity is not like the thing you do at a retreat and then you don't talk about it again for a year. This is a storytelling activity and stories are powerful because we repeat them, we remember them, they move us, they create empathy, they encourage us to connect to somebody or something. They make us want things. Tucked in a drawer, put on a shelf, a story is lifeless. So keep exploring these stories, keep rehearsing the future. Meet on a regular basis, maybe every quarter, maybe twice a year. Ask which pieces of the story you're seeing in the world that day. Use the stories to keep you connected to the world as it changes and to motivate your responses to it. All right, so now you've got a roadmap, seven steps you can take to get to good storytelling that you can use for planning for the future. Let me say just a little bit more though about why I think this is so important now. It's not just Dobbs. I mean, it's Dobbs, but it's not just Dobbs. I think back to how virtually everybody I know responded to COVID. We got in a room or we got on screen and we started putting out fires in order of the heat of their burn. Many of us were in situations where we kept working that way even into the second year of the pandemic. And a lot of really good things came from that. We didn't have the luxury of making drawn out or fully measured decisions. And so many of us tried creative experimental things that we could implement quickly. And we kept iterating that process every time the virus changed. We became really excellent at pivoting and really tired of that word, I know. But now more than two years after the initial shutdown, many of us have been able to step back and look at our choices and changes during those years and decide what we want to sustain and what we want to ditch. Many of us are changing our work habits or work environments. Many of us are changing our priorities, both on campus and off. Our students have changed their study habits and attendance patterns, and we've developed ways to adapt and support them. We have learned a lot, and now that we're not crazily putting out fires, we can act on some of it. One of the key lessons 
I learned, and it's a lesson I'm hearing many colleagues around the country share, is that a lack of preparation and a reliance on adaptive responsiveness comes at too high a cost. This is not the only factor in the rampant burnout and skyrocketing resignations we're seeing, but it's a significant one. So I'm proposing that one lesson we should learn from the pandemic is not to let pandemics take us by surprise. The next one, at least if it's a contagious virus, won't because we already have a host of ready responses. But we know we have a coming population shift with fewer traditional aged college students available to enroll, which in turn threatens an enrollment crisis for non-selective schools, especially those operating on tight margins. We know that historically, lack of access to reproductive health care threatens the lives and health of women with disproportionate effects on women from historically excluded groups. We also know that having children is a leading cause of women needing to pause, delay, or fully stop their education. We know that our students already have much more urgent and pervasive mental health care needs than we were accustomed to. We know too that Republican states experienced significant drops in international enrollments during Trump's presidency, and that when polled, international students cite both physical safety and access to medical care as top concerns when they are choosing where to study abroad. And finally, we know that Clarence Thomas has essentially told us to prepare to have additional rights to privacy withdrawn, that is, if you're a member of a historically excluded group, and that during their confirmation hearings, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch misled the Senate on their positions about legal precedent. So I'm not saying I know how this is all going to turn out, and I'm not portending doom and gloom. I'm just saying there's a lot going on, and it's all uncertain, and it could all affect us. Storytelling and rehearsing the future will help us prepare for the range of potential scenarios that could emerge. So my friends, let's get started. Go ahead and download the handout, Planning for an Uncertain Future Through Storytelling. I've linked to it in the show notes. Share it with your colleagues and map out your planning timeline. Then convene your diverse teams from all corners of campus and get your colleagues preparing for the future. And when you do, drop me a note to let me know how it's going. I would love to hear from you about the challenges and rewards you experience while you're going through this process. I'd also really love to hear your stories. Okay, that's it. I've referenced a ton of info in this episode. I've dropped a bunch of links in the show notes so that if you're curious, you can go read about futurism, diversity, demographic changes, the Supreme Court, and more. In the meanwhile, thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Next week, I'll actually be on a college tour with my teenage daughter, but next week's episode is ready and waiting and will still drop Monday at 10. Until then, happy storytelling.